So, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Andrew Greenbaum. You didn't know that, did you? I am not related to Norman Greenbaum, just so you know that. Although he's from Massachusetts. Um, so, my aunt is very into ancestry. Uh, and so, uh, every time we're together, my aunt tells us who and who we're not related to. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. So, so, um, so she's... Uh, Always talking about our family, and we thought we were Polish, but then we're this, and then we're that, and uh, so so I'm actually kind of interested in a lot of these things, right? But um, in in doing research for this uh, sermon, uh, I ran across uh, a best of album uh, that is related to our topic, um, and it has nothing to do with. I was just kind of interested in uh, in who I'm related to and found out that I'm indeed not related to Norman Greenbaum. But in doing the research for this, I found out that Norman Greenbaum actually has a best of album. Now, who, th- who finds that funny? Okay, so, so I kind of get the age. So let's, let's make this just a little bit more funny. Norman Greenbaum has five Best of albums. He has five compilation records. Now, what is funny about that? Anybody older than like 50? Right? Who knows why that's funny? Okay, you'll notice the name of the compilation albums is Spirit in the Sky. That's, that's pretty much funny because that's his only song. You've never heard another Norman Greenbaum song, right? He had one song and he turned that into five best of albums. That is, that's, that's the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, David, David was a slightly more accomplished songwriter uh, than, uh, and yet even David, even David does a little best of, um, as songwriters will do. Uh, so, so we're going to look at uh, some best of. And this is 2 Samuel chapter 22. It says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, uh, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Uh, This is a kind of a best of when we're talking about... uh, some of the titles of Christ, certainly, but, but that's not exactly what I'm talking about because he brings it back in Psalms 18.2. It looks a little bit familiar. My Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So, uh, so even David likes to you know, use his best material more than once. Bring it, bring it back a couple of times. And, uh, and we're talking about... Uh, uh, one particular title here, by the way, uh, just so you know, uh, someone does a little remix here later on. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 69, this is the, uh, John the Baptist, and we're going to come back to this text and read a larger portion of it. But uh, in, in Luke 1, 67, uh, John the Baptist, after he's born, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so we, we understand that the horn of salvation is clearly referencing Christ, but we want to understand what this means, because that's a strange name. That is a strange title to have, the horn of salvation. What would a horn be? 
I, I put this title on the uh, on on our our sign out front, and I'm like, I wonder what people driving by will think of this title on our on our sign as they drive by the the you know like honk if you love Jesus or what what is the horn of salvation? What in the world does that mean? Know Jesus as the horn, uh, and and because of salvation doesn't fit on the sign out there. They just left it as it is. And so draw a lot of interest, I'm sure, if anyone actually looks over and sees the sign, which I hope they do. Uh, but we're talking about the horn of salvation. Uh, so we want to understand uh, what this is talking about. Now we would have to understand that in that passage here that we're looking at, uh, Luke is talking about Christ. He is not talking about, you would think he'd be, you know, uh, you, you have a child born and you, you want your, all your thought is on the child that's born. That's all you're going to talk about for, for several months. Um, and, and here's his child born, and the first thought out of his mouth isn't about his own son, but it's actually about John the Baptist's cousin, <laughs> which is what this is about. He's not even born yet. Um, but that's what this prophecy is actually about. David's statement, though David didn't know it, uh, as he gives that statement way back in the book of Psalms and in Second Samuel, is about Christ. And David didn't know. I don't know what, what David just was generally writing about God. But in fact, God is using these words to set up a discussion of Christ as a, the horn of salvation. Now, now, when you look at most of those titles that we looked at in Psalms, they're self-explanatory. They have to do with protection, and they have to do with, uh, you know, a shield, and, and all these different things that, that we, we think of. Th- those are pretty obvious references, but the horn of salvation, what does a horn imply? Well, there's a couple of things that a horn implies. And the first one is it refers to, uh, it will, it, a horn was a symbol of power, and we'll see that in just a second. It would refer to specific authorities. When you, when you go through the Bible, and, and you'll see, in, as we're going to look at a little prophecy, uh, prophetic language oftentimes would, would, use, um, would, would use this symbol to refer to a specific person or people. So Daniel 8, 8 and 9, uh, he says this. He says, um, a goat became exceedingly great. That's not really, he doesn't seem to be a nice way to talk to some, about somebody, a goat. Uh, but when he was strong, the horn was broken, and instead of it, there was four um, other horns uh, towards the winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south and towards the east and towards the glorious land. And what in the world is that talking about? Let me just go really briefly, because we don't really, we're not really interested in, in Daniel but at, at this point, but I want to illustrate what this is talking about. So, this is Alexander the Great. Now, you probably can't see it, his wonderful wavy hair, but right here uh, is a horn. Uh, Daniel, or Daniel is referencing Alexander the Great, and, and the Greeks pictured their mighty rulers as goats, in a way, uh, which is um, because the, the horns were a, a symbol of power. Right? Uh, if you've ever seen, uh, you know, you know the, the old wildlife type films and you see these rams just running full speed and crashing into each other with their horns and deer do it too and various things. They, that's amazing power. That would like kill a person. You know, you are seriously injured them. They just walk away from it. Like, what in the world? There's tremendous power and that's why Alexander the Great was pictured as a goat. 
Now, this is a really interesting prophecy, and I'll just go through it really fast, because he talks about four other goats that were go- or four other horns that were going to break off after this one. Alexander died without an heir, so uh, so he had four generals um, that 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 took over various parts of his empire, and and and. Now, these were the four horns, or the so it was divided up into four sections. And and one of them uh, here uh, was Seleucus, and Seleucus had a, a son, and, Selu- and so he took over the the southeastern. It's exactly the, I love Bible prophecy because it always it's always exact. He says it, it, to the he had the southeastern part of the empire, which was Persia, all the way over to India. And it says from him comes this little horn. Well, this little horn, and it would, would come back to Palestine and kind of make trouble. And that's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. His kind of great-great-great-grandson came back to, to Israel. And that's the period of the Maccabees where they're, where they're fighting against the Greeks. And that's exactly... So, so, so Daniel is talking about this in symbolic language. And that's what a horn referred to. It refer, referred to these specific powers. And Revelation uses the same picture. It's not really weird. There's this, there's, uh, this beast with you know, seven heads and ten horns. And what is it? Oh, that's weird. It's just, it's just kings and, and really powerful rulers that, that were, were going to come. And that's all that, that it means. Specific powers. And, and so Christ is this horn. He's this specific power. But it refers to, a horn refers to more than just specific power, but it also refers to the general concept of power. In Psalms 112, verse 9, and there's tons of verses like these. I just randomly picked out one. It says, uh, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever, and His horn is exalted in honor. And so David here is saying, basically, a, a king who is generous. And, and who is benevolent and who is merciful, those types of kings have greater power. They have, their horn is exalted. People tend to gravitate towards those kind of rulers. They have more longevity. You don't necessarily uh, have to fear about assassination attempts all the time because the general mass of people likes you better. It's a, it's a good thing. Your horn is exalted. You, you have more influence. People will remember you thousands of years later. You know, those, those tyrants, that they don't, we don't want to think about them. We want to get rid of them. So, so he says, your horn, your, the general idea of power is symbolized in this horn. And so that is the concept of power. But now we, add, we, we need to add in one more concept because he's called the horn of salvation. Well, that is a weird thought. The horn of salvation. What is the connection... Um, of, of, to authority here and to salvation. What is this connection between, between the two? And so we would need to look kind of at the structure of the Old Testament, uh, the, their worship. This is uh, from Exodus chapter 27, verse 1 and 2. He says, You shall make the altar of acacia wood, uh, five cubits long and Five cubits broad, the altar shall be square, it shall be, its height will be three cubits, and you will make horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you will overlay it with bronze. And by the way, you can go a couple of chapters later and see that the same design was used for the altar of incense. Right? The symbolization of, of, of power on the altar. Now see... Intrinsic to their worship was this symbol of power. God wanted them to understand the power. 
where it comes from. The power of their salvation was in the altar, was in these sacrifices. And, and, so, and, and the power of prayer as, as incense was a, a symbol of. All that was a, a connection made something we talked about memorials and, and things that are done simply to kind of get a concept of things in our head. And, and that's what they had symbolized in their altar. Our altar is one of power. Think of the horns on this altar. And so that every, every time they brought a sacrifice, there was these horns. And they'd put it in the midst of these horns. Listen, this is a powerful thing. And that's the concept, how God ties salvation, in their minds, salvation to power and authority. Is the power of salvation. Well, <clears throat> as we always make the transition, and knowing, and this is even a weirder statement, knowing the horn. That's a weird statement. Know the horn of salvation. Well, for us to know the horn of salvation, we need to talk about just a couple of things, because knowing is about relationship. It's all about relationship. And so we want to first beware of a false relationship. I knew a guy. This is a true story. As I record this, I won't give you his name. Who had another wife or girlfriend. He had another life. He had a car that he left. He was a preacher's brother. Uh... Raised in the church with this guy. And every, I don't know exactly when it started, but at some point in time, he would leave his house in one vehicle, park his vehicle in a barn or something somewhere, and had a different vehicle that he would drive to his other wife's house. I don't know how you manage it, and I don't know how long he managed it for, but obviously I know about it, so he didn't. But for some period of time, people were under a false relationship. They had a false idea about having a relationship with this person. This is what I'm talking about when I say a false relationship. Avoid a false relationship. Um, Not quite as bizarre as that. But I suppose a little bit bizarre is is a story in 1 Kings. And in this story, Solomon has just taken over as the king. And there were, as there are in any succession, numerous assassination attempts and and struggles for the throne. We should not think that in in a divine kingdom that that doesn't happen, that there aren't um, struggles for power. And so in 1 Kings, he says this, Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, and fulfilling, so therefore fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh when the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Abijah, though he had not supported Absalom. Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told to King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is next to the altar. Solomon said to Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, go strike him down. So, <clears throat> sometimes we make false connections to things. We, we, we think, we connect, we, we connect two 
things that shouldn't be connected. I heard one guy, and I've used this a lot of times, that he says, you know, when I was a little kid, I knew what it took to make a car go fast. You had to, what made a car go fast was red and blue lights. If you had red and blue lights on the top of your car, your car would go fast. Because every time, as a kid, every time I looked out my window, those were the cars that went faster than the others. So he's like, I grew up wanting a car with red and blue lights on it. That's logical. So Joab, the general of, of, uh, of, this, uh, of this, you know, he's connected a couple of points that shouldn't have been connected. First of all, he's connected the uh, previous event that happened just a couple of chapters earlier in which the brother of Solomon has done the same thing and, and at least temporarily avoided being killed. He's therefore thought, if you want to save your life, you go to the horns of the altar because, hey, the horns of the altar, that's where power is and that's where our safety is and security and, and you're in the temple anyway. So, so that's where we should, I want to save my life, let me go to the altar. Well, yes, yes, the altar and salvation are connected, but you've connected it in a wrong way that you're now under a false pretense. You have a false relationship with this altar. And that you think grabbing the horns are going to save you from Solomon, which is not going to happen, unfortunately. It doesn't make a difference that you were a good general for the majority of the time. The fact is that you shed innocent blood, and so now you're going to die. Don't have a false relationship, a false sense of security. Uh, another story, and we, we would go to the New Testament for this one, and this is a, a, a funny story, perhaps. But people live under a false pretense. In other words, it's, it's similar to the same idea that we've, we've made, but there's, uh, uh, we, we not just connect things that are, that are in, incorrect, but we, in doing that, we start to, um, how to... How to explain it? We establish new truths. Right? We, we accept things that are wrong for so long that we, we establish new truths that were never meant to be established. And we give significance to things that, that shouldn't have significance, much like red and blue lights. Um, Acts chapter 19 uh, is the story of the seven sons of Siva, or, or a little bit of it anyway. This is, uh, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook the idea to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. What have they done? They've seen people say things and magical you know, things happen. These miracles happen. So they thought, hmm, um, I'm going to connect two ideas. People use the name of Jesus or Paul or whatever and, uh, and these demons leave. So therefore, I can do that too. So, this is, so he says, um, uh, I abjure, they, they were saying, I adjure you by Jesus who Paul proclaims and then and thought they would command the spirits to leave. Right? So, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit, you know, decided not to cooperate. And he says, um, well, Jesus I know, and uh, Paul I'm familiar with. Who are you? And uh, the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, I like the phrase, mastered all of them, and, you know, beat them to a bloody pulp and sent them out naked and wounded. I like this story for a couple of reasons. One, I find humor in it. Uh, but more than that, there's a, there's a couple of details in here that I think are, are very interesting. As we talk about Christ of the horn, 
there's, there's something that is important here uh, before we get to that. Uh, he says, Jesus I know and Paul I'm familiar with. Understand who the driver of these people's fear was. That was actually not Paul. And Paul was very significant and did a lot of things for Christ. I know Jesus. I'm familiar. I've heard about Paul. He's, 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 you know, he's someone to be reckoned with. I've heard of him. I know Jesus. This, this demon knew on a personal level to some degree Christ. Had been acquainted with him. I don't know exactly when and where they had crossed paths uh, you know, from the beginning of time and all that stuff that happens out there wherever it is. This demon knew Christ. And he's power. He's that horn. I know him. I've heard of Paul. The horn. Christ is the horn of salvation. And so we want to then talk about the basis of a genuine relationship. <clears throat> and this is found in Luke 168. It's not going to fit up there. Uh, so, so I'll read it. Uh, uh, 68 through 77. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And this is the whole thing of Zechariah, what, what Zechariah says as his son is born. And then you'll see the transition from talking to Christ to talking about his own son. Um, Blessed be the Lord God Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, so that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So he, get, he comes to the end of this and, and, and blesses his own son. But, but the vast majority of this poem and, or this thing that he's giving to his son is actually not even about his son. It's, it's about Christ. You're going to have the distinction. Your, your great thing that people will say about you is that you served the horn of salvation. See, it's like, it's like Paul, Paul, yeah, Paul I'm familiar with, but, but Christ. Yeah, John the Baptist, but Christ. So there is, I want to talk about a couple of things that have to do with the basis of a genuine relationship if we're going to have a relationship with the horn of that salvation, that power of salvation. And first is the concept of covenant. And he mentions that in here. He talks about this previous covenant. And, and covenant is the basis of a relationship. I, I don't know if it's a thing that girls do. I, I know that it was a thing that boys did. Uh, become blood brothers. You ever, who ever became blood brothers with somebody? Did anyone ever do that? You cut, did you actually cut your finger or did you just like do magic marker? You, wow. Hey, can you remember the name of the person that you did that with or no? Probably can't. No? See? Like, well, that was, but the, that concept, wow, I, I cut myself, I can't remember the person's name, right? Uh, 
we have kind of a loosey-goosey idea of covenant, don't we? Like, oh yeah, I made that covenant. Yeah. Who did I make that covenant? Oh God, that's right, I made that covenant with God. And we do that. Like, and you see people that just the covenant's not in time, just kind of fades or it seems to lose its power. Have you known, have you developed that true, genuine covenant with the horn of salvation? Mercy, by the way, he said, is the gift of the covenant. That's a gift. Mercy. See, there, there are a covenant has benefits and it has some requirements. But the great benefit, again, we see that connection to covenant and power is salvation, mercy. Well, I want to talk then about the terms. The term, really singular, is service. Every covenant has terms, and I want to talk just about a couple of things that have to do with our service. First of all, as he mentions in this text, service is without fear. These are the, the, the um, and, and service without expiration. First of all, he says service without fear. Not, he's not talking about not fearing God, because there's too many references in the scripture that talk about referencing our fear of God. He's talking about fear of other people that would limit us. And he's not even saying that you can't have the emotion of fear. What he's saying is, is don't have that fear that prevents you from living a connection that, that, would, that would motivate you to withdraw from that covenant. This is covenant. Don't have a fear that makes you second-guess your position in that covenant. Covenant. Service without fear. And without expiration. He says, we serve Him all of our days. That's what covenant is. Every covenant is enacted upon blood. When we want to show something serious, we go to blood. We're blood brothers. I've endured pain for this relationship. I've gone through something for this relationship. It means something to me. Most of us here are here because we've made a commitment to Christ. You might be here because you've considered a relationship with Christ. Or you're in the process of developing a relationship with Christ. Commitment says, I do not back down from the commitment that I have made. That's what commitment is. But too many times we have an enemy, and that is nostalgia. Nostalgia is an enemy of the future. Now, I'm not saying nostalgia. I, we go through stuff. And you pull out, oh, that's nostalgic. That's, you know, this, remember this? Remember when? Whatever. And we have memories. I'm not saying that that's bad. But I'm saying that we have a nostalgia sometimes for the past. And think about the past. And we get so focused on the past. And, it, and we forget things. 
I, uh, when we were in, in Ukraine, there was a family. She had nine kids. And when, uh, specifically, she, they, they lived there for a couple of years while, while we were there. And they happened to move down while Katie was pregnant with Adelaide. And she says, uh, um, oh, she wanted to have another kid. Obviously, she was, you know, no longer capable to have children. But she's like, whenever she's around someone with a little baby, she wants to have another baby. Because she has short-term memory loss. She forgets all the other stuff. She, she's got this nostalgia. She's got the nostalgia, but she forgets everything that goes with it. It's like, I don't think a 55-year-old woman probably wants to go through all that again. But the nostalgia makes you forget. And we get nostalgia for the past. And we forget some of the service and the obligation that goes with it. And so uh, we get nostalgia and we say, well, I remember what it was like before all this hard labor. That was fun. Before the covenant. And we forget the hard labor. Because that's what a life without Christ is. Without that mercy. That's what it is. It's hard labor. And we forget that. Nostalgia makes us forget that. But the basis of a genuine relationship keeps us aware. But commitment says don't turn back. And he says, well, how do we identify service? Well, service is identified as holiness or being through holiness or purity, righteousness. Solomon took over his empire. And he realized that to have a successful empire, he was going to have to purge out the elements of the previous administration that never got taken care of by David. Now maybe David was just too old to do it or whatever. Or he's friends with Joab or what happened. But the high priest hadn't gotten taken care of. The generals hadn't gotten taken care of. And Psalm says, we're going to start this right, and we've got to take care of it. We've got to purge it. It's not pleasant, but we've got to do this. It is the basis of our covenant is to purge out the old stuff, as unpleasant as, that, as it may be. I, I, you think about nostalgia. I wonder how many times Solomon, little Solomon, was in the palace... And, and Joab came through, hey Solomon, how you doing? Tussled his hair. Nostalgia. He probably saw this guy on a regular basis. Oh yeah, that's Uncle Joab. And then to have to do that, that had to be hard. Nostalgia had to make that so hard. But it had to be done if the empire was going to be an empire of peace, as it's referred to. Purity. Doing the hard thing and getting rid of that hard stuff to get rid of overcoming nostalgia. If we examine our lives, what do I have of nostalgia? 
What do I, what do I hold over? We've talked routinely about movie night. And I am no good. My memory is very, very, very bad because I was raised in the 80s. I have very bad memory. Very bad. And look at a list of great family movies. Oh, yes. No. But it's nostalgic. I remember that. to purge it. So I'm going to leave you with one question. It is a very strange question. Okay? We start with a strange answer. We might as well finish strange. Am I a pig or a chicken? Some of you know where I'm going. Am I a pig or a chicken? Pig and a chicken decide to open up a restaurant. Chicken says... We should open up a restaurant. Good idea. I'll give the eggs, but we need some bacon. Pig decided not not a good idea. He said, "Why?" What? The chicken's like, "Why?" He says, "You're just involved, and I'm committed." As we leave here today, am I involved? Or am I committed? Am, am I involved in this relationship? Because I think we're all here because we're involved to some degree. And it's easy to be involved. But am I committed? Do I have skin in the game? 